Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As I suspected when I recorded my last podcast on Tuesday, U.S. stock markets continued to be under pressure for the balance of the week, particularly today. We had the Dow Jones closing down about 730 points, almost the low of the day. I think we were down maybe 750 or a little bit more, but a very weak technical day and weak. Uh, NASDAQ down just under 260 points. In fact, if you look at the moves on the week, the Dow was the weakest of the major indexes, dropping 3.3% on the week. S&P 500 and the Russell 2000 each down about 2.8% on the week, with the strongest of the indexes once again being uh, the NASDAQ composite, which was down 1.9%, although some of the high-flying stocks, Facebook in particular, uh, got clobbered today. More advertisers are trying to uh, signal their virtue uh, by pulling their ads from Facebook, and so that's taking a toll now on that stock. But, you know, the weakest index of the indexes is the regional bank index. I've been talking about the weakness in the banks. In fact, one of the reasons that Tuesday's uh, rally didn't look good to me was the weakness in the banks. I mean, the banks refused to participate in the rally and they closed near their lows. Well, the regional bank index got clobbered again today, down just over 6%. That brings the decline for the week to 10%. And a lot of the big banks were getting clobbered today, led lower, I think probably by Goldman Sachs, was down 8.65%, one of the weakest days I've seen in that bank. But all of them were weak. I think part of that had to do, I think yesterday the Federal Reserve came out and there's some limits on the abilities of banks to do share buybacks or some limits on their dividends. But what's really hurting the banks is the economy rolling over. You know, even today, I think it was uh, 
Texas and Florida announced that they were reshuttering the bars uh, because of a spike in the number of people that have been diagnosed positive for COVID-19. And so anything that is hurting businesses and hurting the economy ultimately is hurting the banks because all of these businesses or a large percentage of them have loans. They owe money to the banks. And if they're not open, if they're not collecting revenues, then they're not paying the banks. And the banks stand uh, to have a lot to lose uh, if the economy isn't rebounding as strong as people think. And again, I've been focusing not on the rebound, but on the relapse. Because after the rebound, we're going to get a relapse. And people don't realize that we're going to relapse even lower than we rebounded from. We're not going back to where the economy was because the economy was a bubble. And we can't go back to Kansas. That's not happening. We're going back to recession depression. You know, I was watching, you know, on CNBC today, and uh, there was a discussion. Steve Leisman, forget who the other guy was. He was talking to a couple of CNBC regulars. And, you know, they were commenting on what the Federal Reserve was doing. And the other guy, not Leisman, was a little bit concerned, you know, hey, this isn't really capitalism. You know, the Federal Reserve is is bailing everybody out. Uh, is this really right? I mean, what's going to happen down the road? I mean, it would be better if we had capitalism. But of course, what's happening is better than the alternative, because the alternative is a lot of companies go bankrupt. And therefore, in order to prevent these companies from going bankrupt, the Fed has no choice but to abandon capitalism and bail them out. But why do you assume that the Fed has no choice? Why not just allow companies to fail, just allow capitalism to work? Because that is the best way to resolve this situation. I mean, we're not getting a free pass by letting the government uh, pretend to resolve it. There is a cost to be paid for what the government is doing. And that cost is going to be greater than what the cost would be of letting companies fail, except we pay that bill later rather than sooner. But it's not going to be that much later, and the bill is going to be a lot bigger. Leisman also said that the Federal Reserve was venturing into uncharted territory, that it was boldly going where no central bank had ever gone before with its asset purchases, which I think is a ridiculous statement. There's nothing bold about what the Fed is doing. It's cowardly. The Fed is taking the coward's way out, and it's not blazing new trails. It's following the same trails that many other central banks have followed, and it leads to disaster. It leads to a currency crisis. It leads to a sovereign debt crisis. It leads to hyperinflation. There's nothing new about this. This has been done over and over again, and it's failed every time it's been tried. You know, just because this time it's being done by the Federal Reserve, by the central bank of the United States, by the issue of the world's reserve currency, doesn't mean that if we follow the same monetary policy of Zimbabwe, that we're going to have a different result because we're not. And, you know, the funny thing is uh, Steve Leisman responded by saying that, you know, the Fed needs to do this. Otherwise, it would be picking winners and losers, meaning that if the Fed stepped back and allowed some companies to fail, it would actually be picking which companies survived and which ones failed by not bailing everybody out, which is complete asinine logic. I mean, you're not picking winners and losers by saving everybody. If you just step back and you let the market function, it's the market that's picking winners and losers, not the Fed. And that's how capitalism works. That's what it's all about. And I've explained on this podcast many times that losses 
are maybe even more important than profits. I mean, they're both important, but companies that are losing money need to go out of business. If they can't restructure in such a way to make money, that means they're squandering scarce resources. And it'd be better if they freed up those resources so that other entrepreneurs can figure out a more efficient way to put them together. You know, uh, while I'm on that topic, I know the labor unions came out today and they want another airline bailout. $32 billion, I think, is the number. And again, this is a public bailout. It's not a government bailout. The government doesn't have any money. It has to take it from the people. So the labor unions want the American people, one way or another, to bail out the airlines again. And the reason they're saying they need the bailout is so that the airlines don't have to lay people off. Well, if the airlines need to lay people off because there's no work for them to do, then they should be laid off. If there is going to be a permanent reduction in travel. And I think there's going to be for a lot of reasons, one being recession, right? Where people are just going to travel a lot less just because they have a lot less money to spend. But if you survey the landscape, you can see that travel is going to go down for COVID reasons. Business travel is going to be down. Vacation travel is going to be down. And this is not going to be just a a one-time thing. This is likely to be a downshift that's going to last for many, many years. So the airlines have to prepare for that by laying off workers that they no longer need, right? And if we're going to give them money, if the public is going to now subsidize airlines so that it can retain personnel that it has no work for, I mean, what are all these people going to do? If the planes are not flying, you know, what what are the flight crews going to do? What are the mechanics going to do? What are the baggage handlers going to do? What are the reservation people going to do? Just twiddle their thumbs all day? If there's no work to be done, they need to be laid off. Anything we do to try to cement these workers in place undermines the economy and actually hurts the competitiveness of the airline industry. Everybody loses. Now, obviously, the people who get to have a job doing nothing, I guess they benefit because they're going to be paid and not going to have to work. So they're just on a permanent paid vacation. But it is bad economic policy, bad fiscal monetary policy to do this. Yet I'm sure there's going to be another bailout because the politicians are afraid to let anybody lose their jobs if it's not their fault. See, somehow now anything bad that happens that's not your fault, the government has to Uh, make you harmless. The government has to uh, make you whole anytime something happens that's not your fault, right? Anytime you have bad luck and something bad happens, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, The government's going to give you the money. This is the attitude that we have now. And of course, nobody thinks there's any reason to deny anybody any money because it's all free. Nobody has to pay higher taxes. We just get the money uh, from the Federal Reserve. But not only is the weakening economic data and the, the escalation of COVID cases weighing heavily on the markets. But, you know, we got the uh, Fed balance sheet numbers that came out last week, and the balance sheet shrank, not a lot, but it didn't grow. It shrank for the second week in a row. Now, it's still above $7 trillion, but it's not continuing to grow. And I think that's scaring the markets because that's the only reason the market was going up is because the balance sheet was expanding. And if it's not expanding anymore, well, the markets have to keep on tanking until the Fed comes to the rescue again uh, with more QE. And that's exactly what's going to happen. It's like a gigantic game of chicken, uh, but we know who's going to lose. The Fed is always going to blink and come to the rescue of the markets, especially now in an election year. But, you know, speaking of an election year, look at the polls again. A poll just came out. I think it was yesterday now. 
Biden is leading Trump by 14 points. Right? If you still think Trump's going to win, you are in denial. I mean, is it possible that this could be a complete upset, like a long shot? Sure. I mean, anything is possible, but it is highly improbable that Donald Trump is going to win this election. In fact, if you go to the predicted website now, you'll the numbers are worse for Trump than I've ever seen it. If you want to bet that the Republicans win the White House, it only costs you 39 cents to win a dollar. But if you want to bet that the Democrats win, you got to pay 64 cents to win a dollar. That's the biggest differential I've seen it. That's the most expensive I've seen it to bet Democrat and the cheapest I've seen it to bet Republican. Now, as far as the Senate, the margins are also the most I've seen. For control of the U.S. Senate, if you think it's going to switch from Republicans to Democrats, you got to bet 60 cents to win a dollar. But if you think the Republicans are going to hold the Senate, you can bet, and it's only 42 cents to win a dollar. So overwhelming odds say the betting markets are predicting that the Republicans uh, will lose the Senate as well as the White House. And that is going to be disaster for all sorts of reasons. But we got one more reason today, as if we didn't have a bunch of reasons. The House of Representatives actually passed bill to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state of the United States. Now, it's not going to be the state of Washington, D.C. They want to rename it Washington Douglas Commonwealth because they don't want it to be the District of Columbia Commonwealth because they don't like Columbia because Columbia is from Christopher Columbus. And, you know, he's one of the bad guys, right? They're tearing down Christopher Columbus statues. So they want to rename Washington, D.C. and make it make it into a state. But first of all, Washington, D.C. is not a state by design, right? I mean, if you go back to the founding of it uh, as our capital, what happened was Maryland and Virginia each agreed to cede some of their territory, some of their land to carve out this district because the idea was it wouldn't be fair if we located the capital in any one state. Wouldn't be fair to the other states. There may be some perceived advantage that the state that has the capital in it, right, would have an advantage over the other states. So they wanted to locate the capital outside of any of the states. So they set up this District of Columbia. Well, now if we take that little district and make it a state all by itself, we defeat the very purpose of carving out the territory in the first place. And now instead of having the capital inside a state, the capital is a state. So think about the advantages then that the state of Washington Douglas Commonwealth would have over every any other state because it would be a state and the capital at the same time and it would yield a lot of influence on the economy. But one of the other things that it would do is make it nearly impossible for the Republicans to ever get control of the U.S. Senate again because Washington, D.C. is going to elect two Democratic senators, and they'll be there forever. And that will make it that much harder for Republicans to get a majority in the U.S. Senate when those seats are never going to be in play. So if uh, this happens, right, if the betting odds are right, if the polls are right, and the Republicans lose the Senate in November, they may never get control of it again. It may be impossible to do that. And this is just an example 
Macon, D.C. estate is just an example. And no one's going to oppose it, right? Anybody who opposes D.C. statehood, well, you're just a racist, right? You, the only reason that you would oppose making Washington, D.C. a state is because you're a racist. I mean, that's what they're going to say. And since nobody wants to be a racist, everybody is going to be in favor of, uh, of statehood. The main argument why Washington, D.C. should be a state is because the people residing there lack congressional representation. And they say that's not fair. You know, they're paying federal taxes and they're not uh, they don't have congressmen. They don't have senators or representatives. So at least in Puerto Rico, uh, we're not a state. We don't have senators or representatives, but we're not paying federal income taxes. But the people in Washington, D.C. are not only paying the Washington, D.C. city tax, but they are paying uh, the federal income tax. But of course, if the residents of Washington, D.C. want congressional representation, they could just move. I mean, it's very easy to move out of D.C. into, you know, a neighboring state. They're right there. So if you really feel like you're getting shortchanged, just move over the border. But I think if we're actually going to change the, the nature of the district, rather than making it a state, what we should do is just shrink the borders so that all we're doing is surrounding, you know, Capitol Hill. So we get the White House, Congress, the Pentagon, all those government buildings, and that's going to be Washington, D.C. And then all the surrounding areas where all the people live, we should give that land back to Maryland and Virginia. And now the people who used to live in D.C. will live in Virginia or Maryland, and now they'll be represented. They'll be represented by the delegations from Maryland and Virginia. In fact, that's what I would do if I was the governor of one of these states. I would say, wait a minute. We only surrendered this land because you were setting up this independent district. We didn't surrender the land so that you could make a brand new state. So if you're going to change the nature of the grant, then I want my land back. I would, you know, in fact, that that's what these states should do. They should challenge it. And I don't know, maybe there, maybe there were no strings attached to the gift. Maybe it was like, hey, you can do whatever you want. But still, I think that is the real solution, right? That way we don't have to make Washington, D.C. a state, but we can give the people living there congressional representation without having to move. We just put those that area and, and, and make them residents of, of Maryland and Virginia. Of course, that's not what this is about. This is about power. This is about having two new uh, Democratic senators and five new Democratic representatives and everything that goes along with that. All the, the perks and the privilege and the power, that's what they're really into. It's not about a representation for the residents. It's about political power uh, for the left-wing establishment. But this is just the beginning of all the Looney Tunes stuff that we're going to have, and it's all going to be paid for by printing press. You know, I read that uh, Elizabeth Warren has got the inside track on being the Secretary of the Treasury in the, uh, in the, in the Biden administration. I'm not sure. I know AOC is going to have some kind of cabinet position. Maybe she's going to be the Secretary of Energy or uh, Environment or who knows, right? But it's going to be full of uh, Looney Tune characters, uh, that are going to be uh, running the government. So this should be scaring the stock market. I mean, this could be one of the reasons the stock market is down, although I don't believe so, because I believe if the stock market were really coming to terms with Trump being a one-termer and with Biden coming in, I think the market would be down a whole hell of a lot more than it already was. I think there's a lot more that needs to come out of this market if you start to bake in even a 50-50 probability of Trump losing, even though the odds are much greater than that, just by looking at the polls or looking at the uh, the betting markets. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. 
How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Stephen Moore penned a terrible editorial that ran in The Hill. The title, Time to Act Now Before Deflation Destroys the Economic Recovery. I mean, there's so much wrong with this title, let alone the body of the article. I mean, first of all, there is no economic recovery. All we have is the Federal Reserve trying to reflate the bubble. We're not recovering from anything. We're getting sicker. But recoveries, assuming we had one, are not destroyed by falling prices. Because if you read the article, when Stephen Moore refers to deflation, he's not talking about a contraction of the money supply, because we know that the money supply is not contracting. He is referring to consumer prices, which he feels are falling, which of course they're not. They're actually rising. I mean, year over year, consumer prices are still up about a percent. They're not even falling. Not that that would be a bad thing if it were to happen, but it's not even happening. But supposedly, what we have to worry about is that consumer prices might go down and wreck the recovery, that without consumer prices rising, there won't be a recovery, which is complete and utter nonsense. I mean, I've talked about it on this podcast many times, but one point uh, that Moore specifically tries to raise, because he says, hey, you would think you know prices going down would be a good thing, except he argues in his article why it's terrible for businesses, that it destroys their profits, uh, it destroys jobs because, uh, you know, when prices are going down, people won't buy stuff. And so businesses can't sell and they need higher prices so they can make a profit. All this ignores the fact that the important thing for a business is not the price that he sells the product, but the difference between the price that he sells the product for and the cost of buying it or producing it. It's that difference, that spread that is important. And the other thing that's important is volume, right? So a lot of times you can make a lot more money selling goods for lower prices because you end up selling a lot more stuff because the lower the price of your products, the more people who can afford to buy. And so if you can make less money but sell a lot more stuff, you can make a lot more profits, right? That's what's happening right now in the cell phone industry. The cell phone industry makes a lot more money today than they did back in the 1980s when cell phones were a lot more expensive because the problem was back then they were so expensive, hardly anybody could afford to buy one. You had to be really rich. Now everybody, I mean, people living on uh, welfare have got cell phones. I mean, they're cheap enough that they can give the things away. Yet, because now everybody has them and there's like billions of these things that have been sold, the companies are making a lot of money because they have much bigger volume. So the idea that businesses can't survive when prices are falling is sheer nonsense. It's easier for them to survive if prices are falling because it's not just the prices of what they're selling, but the price to buy or manufacture what they're selling. Their costs are also among the prices that are going down. Every businessman wants to be able to offer his product as inexpensively as possible and still make a profit. Because the lower you can price your product, the more units you can sell. And it's about volume. People want to maximize their profits. So the whole article 
is ridiculous to try to imply that businesses need rising prices to survive, that they won't create jobs and the whole economy will grind to a halt if we don't have rising prices. But we do have rising prices. To argue that deflation is somehow a threat when even if it was, it wouldn't be, but it's not. But then again, what um, Moore is now arguing for is to preemptively make sure that we don't have deflation or falling prices. The Fed needs to print more money. Well, I mean, come on, look at how much money we're already printing. We've never printed this much money before. How could you be worried about falling prices or deflation when we're inflating the money supply at a pace that it's never been done? But apparently for Steve Moore, it's not enough. He wants the Fed to print even more money. He wants the Fed to create even more inflation to save us from this bogus non-existent threat of deflation. And what he is advocating is a big tax cut, right? He wants payroll taxes to be cut and the Federal Reserve to just print the money that the government is no longer collecting in payroll taxes and use the money it prints to pay off the Social Security recipients rather than taxing the wages of the current workers. Now, all that is politics, right? That's all about helping to reelect Donald Trump because he gets to give blue collar voters a free tax cut, right? That's really what this is about. It's not about trying to save us from a non-existent threat. The threat that Stephen Moore sees is that Donald Trump's not going to get reelected. And he just says, well, you know, who cares about the economy? Who cares about the dollar? Who cares about inflation? I'm going to throw away everything I've ever believed in the past and everything I've ever advocated. And let's just print money. Let's just create all this inflation so we can cut taxes more and have even more of government spending financed by the Fed. I've already mentioned on this podcast that the Fed is right now providing 55 cents out of every dollar the U.S. government is spending. And according to Stephen Moore, it's not enough. He wants the government to collect even less taxes and just print even more money and create even more inflation. So this was a horrible, horrible op-ed that Stephen Moore never would have written had a Democrat been president of the United States. Right? In fact, had a Democratic administration proposed what Stephen Moore is now proposing, he would have been criticizing it just like I am. You know, but instead, because, you know, Donald Trump is the president, then, you know, he everything he's ever believed about economics goes out the window and he becomes a complete Keynesian. He now believes that the, 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 the best path to prosperity is uh, printing money. In fact, that's what Larry Kudlow, right? Larry Kudlow now, who used to be on CNBC and his motto was uh, free market capitalism is the best path to prosperity. That's not the path he wants us to take now that he's the chief economic advisor. His credo is now uh, big government, uh, big deficits, and inflation is the best path to economic prosperity. It's not. It's a one-way ticket to economic ruin. Some of the specific economic data that came out this week that I think bodes ill for the U.S. economy was the international trade deficit in goods, used to be known as the merchandise trade deficit. They were expecting a May deficit of $68.2 billion. Instead, the deficit swelled all the way up to $74.3 billion. In fact, the prior month's deficit that was originally reported at 69.7, that was also revised upward to 70. 7 billion so two consecutive months of plus 70 billion dollar 
trade deficits. And the real reason for the increase was a plunge in exports. While imports only dropped by 1.2%, exports plunged by 5.8%. And that really evidences a weakening U.S. economy, even more than just the decrease in imports does, because that's our ability to produce and to export. You know, Donald Trump has been making uh, manufacturing and the revival of manufacturing a cornerstone of his uh, campaign for re-election as presidency, but clearly we're having a hard time in that sector uh, because we are producing less. I think also uh, some of it was energy. Obviously, we had less production there, so less exports as well. But this bodes ill for the GDP numbers because obviously they were already going to be a disaster, uh, but the trade deficit is a subtraction from GDP, but this also is going to help weigh heavily on the U.S. dollar. I talked about that on my podcast on Tuesday when I was debunking the dollar milkshake theory and the idea that the dollar was going to go up, that there was a shortage of dollars. Well, one of the reasons that there's a glut of dollars is because of our enormous trade deficit, which is getting even bigger. We are flooding the world with dollars that the world does not need to buy American exports. Now, to the extent that they use those dollars to invest in U.S. financial assets, then the dollar doesn't plunge. But if they don't want to buy our financial assets, which they shouldn't because they're way overpriced and headed lower, uh, then we have a real problem on our hands because then the dollar is going to tank and then we're going to have to feel the full brunt of the inflation that the Fed has been unleashing. Also, yesterday, we got the inventory numbers. And I saw a lot of people trying to spin this as a positive, uh, but it's not a positive at all. Uh, Retail inventories were down 6.1% for May, and that followed a revised higher 3.8% decline in retail inventories the previous month. Wholesale inventories didn't drop as much, but they weren't supposed to drop at all. The consensus was for a slight build of 0.1. Instead, we got a drop of 1.2. And last month's 0.4% gain was revised to just a 0.2% gain. Now, the way I heard people trying to put a bullish spin on this bad news was that all this was going to help uh, GDP in the future as the businesses look to replenish these inventory levels, these low inventory levels. I don't think they're going to replenish them at all. I think they can read these rather obvious tea leaves. They don't need the inventories because they can't sell them. I mean, not for a high enough price. I mean, right now, a lot of companies are just having to mark stuff down because it's the only way they can move the merchandise. So I think a lot of these stores and more store closures are being announced every day. More bankruptcies are being announced every day. Bankrupt stores don't need more inventory. They already have more inventory than they need. So this is the beginning of a trend. We're not going to see a replenishment of inventories. We're going to continue to dwindle down the inventories that Americans are too broke to afford. And once all the stuff is gone, then the prices are going to go way up. The biggest economic data point, though, that came out today that I think drew the most attention was the personal income and spending numbers for May. Now, remember, last month, we got a huge increase in personal income, up 10.5%. That surge was due entirely to U.S. government transfer payments. As a matter of fact, I just read that right now, 25% of all the income that Americans have 
is because of government transfers. So the government is providing American citizens with 25% of their income. A quarter of the country is now on the dole. And the problem here is the people who are getting money from the government are not doing anything to earn the money. They're just getting the money. I've explained that on the podcast before. Income needs to be in proportion to what you put in, your economic output. You contribute by working and supplying the market with goods and services, and you're rewarded with cash that enables you to buy goods and services. So you could take out in proportion to what you put in. But if you're just sitting at home, you know, watching Netflix, right, and not doing any work and a government check just shows up, now you can take that government check and buy goods and services, even though you didn't provide any goods and services for anybody else. All you're doing is taking out. You're putting nothing in. You got 25% of the people doing that. That's impossible. The dynamics are not going to work uh, if you got that many people riding in the wagon and everybody else trying to pull. The load becomes impossible to bear and you have a greater and greater incentive for people who are struggling to pull the wagon to just give up and jump in the wagon with everybody else. And before you know it, nobody wants to pull the wagon. Everybody wants to ride in it. In fact, that's what's going to be another problem in the Biden administration that's coming up with higher taxes and more regulation because most entrepreneurs and investors, instead of trying to figure out how to grow their wealth, they're mainly going to be concerned with preserving what they have. How do I you know, protect myself from losing the wealth that I've already accumulated? How do I shelter my wealth from taxation? And how do I preserve my wealth and protect it from inflation? That's what everybody's going to be doing. That's going to be the name of the game. Keep what you have. Forget about trying to get more. It's just don't, you know, end up with less. And the problem is when people are no longer trying to increase their wealth, they're not, you know, creating goods and services. They're not providing employment opportunities. They're not growing the economy. So when everybody is hunkered down, just trying to preserve what they have, the people who suffer the most are the consumers who no longer have goods and services to buy and the workers that no longer have paychecks. There's no more jobs being created because if you're just trying to preserve what you have, you don't have to create additional jobs. You're only creating jobs when you want more, when you're trying to increase your wealth. You know, you have all these Democrats who are so upset that people are getting wealthy, but they don't understand that the pursuit of wealth creates a lot of opportunities for other people creates opportunities for people that they hire, and it benefits their customers by giving them a a better selection of goods and services. But when people are no longer um, uh, trying to grow their own wealth, then the biggest losers are not the, the rich who are already wealthy, but all the other people who would have been made wealthier by those efforts of of those uh, entrepreneurs that are now no longer trying to make money because it's too difficult and their their main concern is not losing what they have. And when a lot of people recognize that the real threat is inflation and a collapsing dollar, then the way a lot of Americans are going to try to preserve their wealth is by getting it out of the country, by getting rid of dollars and investing abroad instead of in the US, and that will help to grow other economies and to provide employment for people outside the United States rather than inside the United States. Now, while stocks were heading down, gold continues to trend higher. I mean, it didn't have a blowout week, but it was up another 1.5% on the week. We managed to close up about $6.30, uh, 
We're above 1770. 1771.50 is the last trade. Now, this is the highest weekly close, I believe, in eight years. Now, we still have a couple more days left for the monthly chart because we have Monday and Tuesday for the last uh, two trading days of June, which will mark the end of the second quarter and the first half. But, you know, not only are, are stocks going up or is gold going up, but it also means that stocks continue to lose more ground priced in gold than they are priced in dollars. Gold stocks had a good week. Not bad. GDX up just under 5% on the week. GDXJ up about 5.8%, so almost 6% on the week. I think, we're again, we're poised for a big move. I thought that when I did the podcast on Tuesday that we were getting closer to a big move. Hasn't happened yet, but the technicals are getting better and better. We're climbing this wall of worry. Uh, it really does look like a coiled spring to me that's about to uh, break out. And when it does, look out. I mean, I think uh, these stocks are going to go ballistic. You know, one of the reasons that my value fund had been so underperforming uh, its benchmark was because I had an allocation to gold stocks in uh, my fund. And what I didn't have was an allocation to financials, right? Financials are a very big part of the index. And most of the other funds that are in my category, and there's over 300 funds in this international stock category, most of them have very significant exposure to financials and no exposure to gold stocks. Well, I had the opposite. I had no exposure to financials and significant exposure to gold stocks. And as a result of that, my value fund, when this year started, my value fund was the lowest in its category. I was dead last over the last three years and over the last five years. That's how, you know, relative performance, how bad it was. Well, as of today, not only is that value fund your Pacific Value Fund, the number one fund for the year, right, of 2020. It's the number one fund for the past year. That's 52 weeks. It's the number one fund for the past three years. And it's the number one fund for the past five years. So that means I made up five years of underperformance in the last six months. And the reason I was able to do that is because financials went down and I didn't own them and gold stocks went up and I did own them. Now, the rest of the portfolio is not that dissimilar uh, to the index. I mean, it is. I mean, I have, we have our own stocks that we like. Um, but that was probably the most significant difference in having gold stocks instead of financials. And for several years, that was killing me. But now I made it all back. Now, I'm still in that fund. If you look at the 10-year performance, I'm still near the bottom. I'm not the very worst one, but I'm pretty damn close. I'm one of the, I'm almost the worst fund uh, for the last 10 years. But I think there is a very, very good chance that by the end of this year, that's in six more months, I think that fund could be number one over 10 years, right? Not just five. That means I could have made back 10 years of underperformance with one good year. And that's the name of the game, right? You have to wait stuff out. That's what I've been talking about. When you understand the fundamentals and nobody else does, it's a waiting game, right? In the short run, uh, stocks are a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine, right? 
In the short run, it's just all that matters is what people think. Fundamentals don't count. It's what people think the fundamentals are that counts. But in the long run, it's the fundamentals that count. And what people think ultimately has to jive with reality. And that's what's happening now. People who were so bullish on financials, they were wrong. I was right to be bearish because I understood the problems that were coming. And the people who weren't buying gold stocks were wrong all these years because I knew what the Fed was going to do, particularly because I understood the problems for the financials. So I knew that gold stocks would eventually go way up. I just wanted to own them when they did. I just didn't know exactly when that was going to happen. So I just bought them and I was patient and I avoided the stocks that I, that I didn't like. Look, a, a perfect example of how the long term can completely eradicate the short term. Look at this. This German company, Wirecard, right? Wirecard was one of the highest flying stocks out there. Back in 2006, you could have bought this stock for under $5. And last year, I think the stock topped out at just under $200, like $198, $199 a share. I mean, what a ride from under $5. If you put um, $5,000, right? into Wirecard in 2006. Last year, it was worth a million dollars. But if you still hold it, as of today's close, it's 1,280 bucks. That's it. All those profits went up in smoke, almost all of it this week, right? Because the stock ended last week at 26. Uh, and it ended the week before that at 92, so in two weeks, it went from 92 to $1.28 because it turned out the whole thing was a fraud. Now, my point in bringing it up is let's say you looked at this stock when it was $10 or $20 and you thought it was a fraud and you didn't buy it, right? And then you watched the stock go up to 200 You look pretty foolish. I mean, you passed out on a, on, a, on a massive gain that you could have made had you just bought the stock. Now, other people didn't think it was a con. They believed it and they were wrong, but they made a fortune if they sold on paper, because if you did not sell, you lost the fortune. You're actually down on your initial investment. Even though you let your $5,000 go up to a million, right? You wrote it down to 1,280 bucks. And if you still hold it, you're probably going to ride it down to zero because that's probably where it's going. Now, obviously, somebody who thought it was a great company who bought it at five or ten dollars, they could have sold it at fifty or a hundred or two hundred, or if they got the exact high, and they could have made a ton of money, even though they were basically wrong about the company. But since other people were wrong after they were and overpaid by an even greater amount, they could have made money by selling to a greater fool. That didn't mean that they were right, it just means that they were smart traders or they were lucky, but the people who didn't sell didn't make any money. And if they were laughing at all the people that stood back on the sidelines because they missed out, well, where are they now? Yes, the people who might've known this thing was a fraud from the beginning, had they bought it anyway, despite knowing it was a fraud, could they have profited off of other people's ignorance and greed? Sure they could have, but maybe they were too afraid to do it. But in the bottom line is the people that never bought it are the ones that definitely didn't lose any money. But a lot of people who bought it are going to lose a ton of money if they didn't sell. And another reason I want to bring this up is because of Bitcoin. Because I've been trying to say the same thing uh, 
about Bitcoin as what happened with, with Wirecard. And of course, even if you completely believed Wirecard, right, and you bought some at $5, $10, and you didn't think it was a fraud and you really liked it, but you had, you know, 50 times your money, could, would it kill you to take something off the table to sell a little bit, you know, to play with the house's money just in case? That's what I've been trying to tell these Bitcoin guys who think they've made so much money in Bitcoin. I keep on saying, you ain't made nothing until you sell, right? Don't tell me about all the money you made in Bitcoin until it's off out of Bitcoin, right? It's like you're in a casino and you're telling me about all the money you've made, but all your chips are still on the table. Leave the casino with your, with your winnings and then tell me how much money you made. Don't tell me how much money you made while your, your chips are still in play because you can still leave busted. And that's what happens to a lot of people. And I think that is what is going to happen with Bitcoin. Now, we didn't see a big drop in Bitcoin this week. I've been saying that Bitcoin looked toppy and maybe it's only down one or two percent. Right. As I'm recording this, it's just below ninety two hundred. I think it was maybe ninety three hundred when the week began, uh, got as high as maybe ninety eight, ninety nine hundred. So it tried to get up to ten thousand, uh, got rejected up there and, and sold back down. I think I saw it peak below 9,000 briefly, maybe in one five minute bar. Uh, but there was so there was some uh, support there. But I think there's some stuff going on in crypto land that should get a lot of people nervous into thinking that maybe Bitcoin is the next wire card. And what I'm referring to is the action that I'm looking at in these crypto trusts, the grayscale trusts. Now, I've talked a lot about the grayscale Bitcoin trust. You know, I did that debate uh, with Barry Silbert, uh, who founded that. I did it at SALT a year ago. This year's SALT conference was canceled, uh, but I did a debate with him a year ago. I forget if that debate is up on YouTube or not. I think it is. You think you guys can watch it. Uh, but they launched that campaign, the Drop Gold campaign. And so we did this debate, you know, simultaneously with their launch of the Drop Gold campaign. But in any event, they also have a Ethereum trust, which you know basically has Ether instead of Bitcoin. Well, that trust collapsed this week, down 50% on the week, down 11.5% today alone, but 50% this week. That's a huge drop. Now, yes, it was trading at a really, really big premium, and it's still at a big premium, just not nearly as big as it was when the week began. In fact, I think we're now down about 65% from the high earlier in the month. So that is a huge collapse in uh, the Ether Trust. Now, the Bitcoin Trust today kind of rolled over. It was down 4.3% today, down 6% on the week. Even though Bitcoin was barely down 1%, you've got the Bitcoin Trust down 6%. And what that means is the premium on the trust is shrinking. But I think it's going to shrink some more. In fact, I think it's about to trade at a discount, which I don't think it's done. I mean, maybe it did at some point, but I look at a chart. I don't see any point where uh, this closed-end fund was trading at a discount. But here is what should make a lot of the Bitcoin hodlers nervous. And you know what? You can always buy back, guys. You could sell some Bitcoin tonight, and you can buy it back cheaper. Right. Personally, I wouldn't buy it back. I would just take the money and run. But if you want to go back in the casino at a better time, you know, that's up to you. But at least, you know, you'll have uh, more money. So you won't have to put it all back in. Um, but I read 
that since the halving, and I talked a lot on this podcast about the Bitcoin halving, but since we had the halving, that better than 100%, and at one point it was 150%, but I'm not sure, you know, I read this and maybe a few more weeks or have gone by or days, but at one point, um, the Bitcoin trust had purchased 150% of all of the total Bitcoin mining. Uh, uh, that had taken place during that time. So 150% of the new supply of Bitcoins that was being mined into existence was bought by uh, the Bitcoin trust. And what was happening was there was a lot of demand for shares. And so instead of allowing that demand to push the price of the shares to a greater premium to its net asset value, which would have been the case, what Barry Silbert did is he went out and he bought Bitcoin and sold new shares, issued new shares that were bought by investors, right? And then he was able to use that money to buy the extra Bitcoin. So now the total amount of Bitcoin that the trust owns goes way up. And that's great for Seabird because the closed-end fund charges a 2% management fee. So the more money they're managing, the more the fees they're able to charge. So if they just had let the premium run, right? Had they just let shareholders benefit from the rise in the price because they could have theoretically sold their their shares at a, at a, at a premium, uh, they created new shares and transferred the gains to themselves because now there's a bigger pool uh, of Bitcoin for uh, Grayscale to manage. So they were, you know, they were, they were um, buying all these Bitcoins. But the interesting thing about it is that buying did not cause the price of Bitcoin to go up. In fact, the price of Bitcoin went down despite tremendous buying by the Grayscale Trust, which means what would have happened to the price of Bitcoin had Grayscale not been in there buying all those Bitcoins? Obviously, the price would be a lot lower. The reason it's not a lot lower is because of uh, the buying from Grayscale Trust. Now, some people might say, well, maybe the people who bought the trust, um, they just would have bought Bitcoin if the trust wasn't there. And so the, 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 uh, uh, the trust just took away demand from Bitcoin. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, maybe people are buying in their IRAs, which they wouldn't have been able to do. I think what's happening is a lot of gamblers, a lot of speculators, maybe a lot of the uh, millennials that are trading on Robinhood, maybe they took uh, some of their uh, stimulus money, their PPP money or whatever, their extended unemployment benefits or their stimulus checks, and they bought a GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, because they, they thought it was going to go up because of the halving, because of all the hype surrounding the halving. I think a lot of speculators bought uh, the Bitcoin shares. You know, I was pointing that out, that, you know, even though Bitcoin wasn't going up for a while, uh, the shares of the trust was going up, and it was the opposite that I was seeing with gold and gold stocks. Gold was going up, but not the gold stocks. Well, here you saw the Bitcoin trust going up, but not Bitcoin itself. And I think that the people who are buying the trust, those are more traders. Those are more speculators. That's why they're, you know, they're buying a, 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 an exchange traded fund in their brokerage accounts because they can be more nimble. They can buy and sell very quickly, right? They're obviously not hodling to use the Bitcoin as a medium of exchange at some future utopia when the whole world is using Bitcoin because they're not actually buying Bitcoin. They're buying a security that owns Bitcoin. So they're speculating on the price of Bitcoin by definition. I mean, I think a lot of that is also true for people who buy gold ETFs as opposed to people who buy coins, right? The people who are buying gold coins from me at Shift Gold, 
they're not buying and selling those coins. They're buying them and holding them. But I know I have brokerage clients that will buy GLD and they'll trade it. They might day trade it. Nobody's day trading Maple Leafs or Cougarans. I mean, you, you don't do that, but you could easily day trade uh, GLD. And so I think you have a lot of traders, a lot of speculators uh, who have been buying GBTC on all this hype. And where have the Bitcoins been coming from? I think it's the big whales, right? Or that's redundant, the whales that have been quietly unloading their Bitcoins and selling them to these small speculators who are buying GBTC. So basically, this Grayscale Trust was a great get-out-of-jail-free card because these uh, whales were able to unload their Bitcoin. The trust was buying them on behalf of all these small investors. I mean, some people want to say, oh, this is institutional investors that are buying. I don't buy it at all. I don't think there's any real institutions that are dumb enough to buy Bitcoin. Right? And of course, you know, again, institutions are handling other people's money. And by definition, they're a lot more cautious. They never want to go out on a limb. And believe me, you're going out on the greatest of limbs when you're buying Bitcoin. So this is not institutions who are bu buying the Grayscale Trust. These are the same guys who are buying Hertz in bankruptcy that are buying this thing, right? And so they have no idea what's going to happen. But here is my other point. Now that they have issued all these extra shares to traders, Right? What's going to happen when they want out? Right? When these guys who bought uh, GBTC for a quick pop, when it drops instead of pops, and they want to cut their losses and sell, what's going to happen to the price? The price is going to crash, and I think we're going to see GBTC shares trading at a big discount to the actual value of the Bitcoin they have. Now, one way that Siebert could prevent that from happening would be if he reversed what he did before. He could buy back those shares and he could sell his Bitcoin in order to get the money to buy back those shares. But I don't think that he would do that because then his assets under management would be shrinking and he would be giving up management fees. See, closed-end funds really don't like to cancel shares and sell assets because they're slitting their own throat. What they would rather do is just let the stock price collapse and trade at a discount. And that way it's the shareholders that have to take the loss, not the Bitcoin trust, because they can still charge the same fee because the fees are not based on the share price. The fees are based on the assets. So I don't think uh, they're going to reverse this process. I think they're very glad that they were able to buy more Bitcoin and now they're getting a larger management fee. So when you have all this extra supply hitting the market without buyers, you're going to see a collapse. But then I think that's going to throw a scare into the market when you see uh, the Bitcoin trust trading at a big discount to the value of a Bitcoin. And then, of course, what will happen then is some individuals will try to arbitrage that. They'll try to sell Bitcoin and buy the trust. But as they sell Bitcoin, that drives the price of Bitcoin down. That drives the NAV of the trust down, and that causes more selling. And we can have a complete spiral. We could be on the verge of a meltdown uh, in both Bitcoin and GBTC. But even if that doesn't happen, there is a higher likelihood that it might happen. So if I was in Bitcoin now, which I'm not, I would get out, right? Step aside, take a little time out and see what happens, right? There's not a lot of upside. Don't worry about missing the train. The train's not going anywhere. Look, if Bitcoin has not been able to get above 10,000, given everything that's happened this year, 
If Bitcoin is not going up, it's not going to go up. I've been saying that. So you're not missing out on the upside. But what you're going to do is potentially miss out on a whole hell of a lot of downside. Right. And if you're not going to sell everything, at least sell something. Right. Don't be the guy that rode Wirecard all the way up and then never sold a share and then crashed and burned with the stock and lost back years worth of profits in one day. Because, again, it doesn't matter what you make. It's what you keep. Right. As uh, Kenny Rogers used to say, don't count your chips while you're still sitting at the table. And again, it works in reverse. Don't worry about your losses while you're still in the game if you know you've got a winning hand or if you know you're better than all the other players at the table. That was why I brought up uh, my value fund, because I'm playing to win. I'm playing to go home with everybody else's chips, and I'm willing to wait it out. If I have to lose a few hands in order to win all the chips, then that's what I'm going to do. Or just like in chess, sometimes, you know, a good player will sacrifice a piece in order to get a a, a more valuable piece or in order to get a checkmate. And maybe the less experienced player, oh, great, oh, I just got this guy's bishop. He doesn't know what he's doing. Well, maybe by giving up the bishop, he just won the game, right? So I'm thinking long term. I'm playing chess and a lot of other people are playing checkers and they don't know what they're doing and they're just following the herd. And what they don't understand is they're following the herd off the edge of a cliff. 